and thanks for listening to this month's Northern Logger podcast. So this month I had a really exciting opportunity, which was that I traveled to Elmia Wood, which is the biggest logging expo in the world in Elmia, Sweden, which is kind of in the central southern part of the country. People travel from all over the world and particularly all over Europe to come see the heavy equipment at the expo, to talk with other loggers, to learn about new forestry techniques, anything that you would do at a normal expo, but multiplied by just the sheer scale of the event. I had known about this event for a while because my predecessor at the Northern Logger magazine, Eric Johnson, had traveled there in 2017. It happens once every four years. I had been looking forward to going in 2021, but because of COVID, the show was canceled and rescheduled for 2022. From the 2nd to the 4th of June, my good friend Henry Gundlach, who is on the NELA board of directors and is a hand cutter logger in Connecticut, and I, we took a flight over to Sweden and we looked around to see what we could see at the world's largest wood expo. We also ran into one of my favorite loggers and farmers in the Northeast, Sam Lincoln, who's been a contributor to this podcast and to the Northern Logger magazine. And Sam was over there with a friend from Vermont, and they were looking at all of the equipment and going to several presentations on forestry techniques. And so for this podcast, I just wanted to talk to Henry and talk to Sam about some of our experience over at Elmia Wood in Sweden. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Henry. You know, we went to the Elmia Wood Show together, the largest loggers expo in the world. I'm curious if you went in with any expectations, like what did you think you were going to see over there? Well, I knew that I was going to see a lot of cut-to-length equipment, and that's absolutely fine with me because that's kind of how I grew up in the woods is wood cut-to-length. But I was very surprised to to see that they they make harvesters for little little small like pre-commercial tenon, what we would call them here, and right up, they really manage their woods much more intensely than we do. I was glad to see that. I don't know. I I wasn't really expecting to be able to talk to people from several different countries, but that's what ended up happening. And so I learned a lot. Yeah. I mean, first of all, to your first point, it was so interesting to see the difference in how the forest looked over there because it's it's boreal forest, but it's also just so intensively managed that, like I said to you when we were driving, it feels like a tree garden. Yes, they're definitely farming their woods. I don't know, probably we'll we'll get to that point sometime maybe, but we're a younger country and we're a vast country and we tend to waste more than they do. They can't afford to waste resources. Neither can we anymore. We just don't know that yet, apparently. Yeah, totally. We got to this show. It was completely cut to length equipment. The major exhibitors weren't there. John Deere, Cat, Komatsu, Ponzi. Right. None of them were there because they'd had a dispute with the show. And instead, what was there was these, I mean, to me, they looked very like very small pieces of cut-to-length equipment. Can you talk a little bit about that stuff? Yes, they, they, they were much smaller than what we tend to see here. 
of course, the ground was a little bit more forgiving than, than what I typically in northwest Connecticut. We've got very hilly, rocky conditions. Spruce is sensitive to thinning, so that's probably why they went with cut to length to begin with, because they don't. I never saw a skitter over there, and I thought that was kind of funny. And I don't know whether there are some in other places, hillier sections, but here you would, you know, most of the loggers used cable skitters when I was growing up and cut to length is more of a new concept here compared to over there. But yes, they, they make very small, very small harvesters, very small forwarders and right up to really big ones. It all depends. And I think that's because even people from some of the researchers that we talked to there, people that have even five or 10 acre woodlots work them. They've, they manage their wood. There's a, a much bigger demand for, for small equipment, which I think here, I couldn't use one of the small forwarders because it won't lift some of the wood that we, that we typically handle. But I can see niches for for smaller equipment here, especially because it takes so much money to move big equipment. In Connecticut, you have to have a, a permit to move anything that we use now. So if you had smaller stuff, you'd be able to move it more effectively to small woodlots. They use small woodlots in Sweden, for sure. And we tend to overlook them here. People look at a small job and say, well, I can't move to that job. Sorry, I can't help you. And I think that's particularly interesting for some of the loggers that I know that are in areas like Rhode Island or probably in some parts of Connecticut, where you do have a lot of these like super subdivided small lots. Also, the outlook on forestry is different there than it is here. I could be wrong. I, I didn't get the, the chance to talk to small landowners, but I'm pretty sure that, you know, access is a problem here. Whereas I would imagine because you're, you're, you're more with your peers there as a landowner. And I think if you had a small woodlot and your, and your neighbor had the access, they'd say, sure, absolutely. Go ahead and use it here. The first thing they say is I don't want you on my property. If you don't, if you don't have a way out too bad. A lot of it is uh, a way of thinking, I think. I mean, I thought it was interesting. We met that guy who was a hog farmer. He was talking to us about, first of all, how much he felt like Scandinavia was like the upper Midwest and how he had visited Wisconsin and was like, oh, it's just exactly the same between Sweden and Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. But he was also talking about kind of the status of loggers in in Sweden and how he felt like it was more highly regarded as a trade over there than it was in the U.S. I think absolutely. He said farmers are on a lower social status there, yet higher here. And I don't know if that's just perception or not, but, but I think you're right. I think that the loggers are held in a much higher regard there than they are here. Right. Some of it's from the way this industry conducted themselves 150 years ago when we still have a stigma. It's no longer anywhere near like that, but it's a hard thing to change, you know? Something that I thought was interesting being over there was we were trying to think about the economics of how it worked because the wood is so small that they're Mm -hmm. handling. And then we were talking to people and they said that in terms of markets, in terms of 
the cost of operating. It seemed very similar to the U.S. in terms of what's happened to the industry in the past 20 years. And I know you had wondered, how, how did they make it work? Yes, I did. And then I got thinking more in depth about it. And they really don't have any choice. But to, if they don't thin those stands when the stuff is very small and dense, then, then they're going to slow down the, the rate of growth for the next phase of harvest. So they, they understand that they need to do it, even if it's a break-even thing. And of course, I, th- I, I think we do that here some too. Or even at a loss, you know, that we don't want to waste things. They're very, you know, very conscious of not wasting a resource. Completely. We had also talked to them about the sawmill situation, and they told us that it's basically, they don't have a lot of small mills over there anymore. It's all been consolidated into a few big mills. Mm-hmm. Kind of made me think of the industry in northern Maine. And how you have this specific kind of forest type, and then you have big mills that everything goes to. Yes, I think the same thing's happening here. We we have a lot less small sawmills than we used to have. I mean, there are some portable band mills and things like that. But but as far as uh, people that are in the sawmill industry full time, there's a lot less small mills than than there was. Uh, even 30 years ago. And, you know, of course, right now, the sawmill business in the United States, or at least in the Northeast, has been going to the big, big mills in the last 30 years. But right now, with fossil fuels so expensive, it's, it's getting a lot harder to truck raw material long distances, much more expensive. But it, it all depends on what happens over the next couple of years, whether things try to go the other way, but uh, you won't see very many small, you know, sawmills spring up at least down here because nobody wants a sawmill. We're, you know, it's kind of an undesirable, it's not in my backyard. It's okay to have one, but don't put, put, put it somewhere else. What else did you notice being over there? The, American in Sweden for the first time. I think I I learned from the the man that was running the steel uh, chainsaw safety thing. Um, there's very few hand cutters left, in, but but their land, at least what we saw, lends itself to mechanical harvesting. So they went that way, much much like Maine and the New Hampshire's getting that way, and in Connecticut, I think probably. of the wood is still cut manually because we have small woodlots, small woodlots, heavy population, big timber, and and it's so expensive to move the equipment. But over there, I think if you noticed all the forwarders, uh, they had signal lights and taillights and headlights on them. They can drive them around. Here, you can't do that either. If if you've got a job, you know, two, three miles away, you just drive it. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's great if you're able to do that. (laughs) I mean, that was an interesting thing that I wanted to talk about is the trucking. Because what we saw were these really large log trucks that had, you know, loaders between two beds. and, And the loaders had an enclosed cab. And then we're driving down these tiny roads, <laughs> and I know you right. said, and how make, is this working? Well, I think it's because 
they've got a completely different configuration than we do. For one thing, I didn't see what we call a conventional cab truck. Every Everything I saw was a cab over, and they're much more adaptable to tight tight conditions, So, which they have. And then they had like one tier of 16-foot wood on that truck, a loader with a cab on it, which so so they're they're looking for the people you know comfort more than we do and safety. And then on the trailer, they pulled the trailer behind that that they could put two tiers of, of logs on. And uh, they're very maneuverable on back roads, and we don't do that. We don't do it that way. And I'm not sure why not. Um, we'll probably have to push towards that in the future. I th- I thought the way the way they their log trucks are are pretty pretty cool the way they set them up. And I don't know why why we don't uh, we don't vision things that way. Well, did going over there leave you feeling optimistic about the forest industry? Uh, yeah, I think so. I, I'm kind of an optimist anyway, so <laughs> yeah, I think yeah, well, it'll uh, things will have to settle out and and we'll keep working anyway. So yeah, yeah, and, and some of the mechanized, some of the harvesters and things. I can I could see most of their timber was smaller softwood and straight and much more easily harvestable than some of some of the harvesters that that we're trying we're trying to run some hardwood here that doesn't lend itself good to mechanical operations yet we're making it work I know two or three people that are but it is rougher it's harder to process the wood that that we're trying to cut at least in my area yeah, a big oversized hardwood log compared to what they have over there. It's like it's not even the same kind of job. Right. And 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 the crooked uh, tops and things that we deal with here and uh, yes, uh, it seems to me that uh, it's much harder on the processor. Yet they're getting there. They're working all the time on improvements and uh the two the two uh, mechanical operations that I'm familiar with, they they both work around all that. You know, there's still a little bit of handwork, but not that much. Well, it was interesting talking to the guy who was with the Champs of Logging program, which is, you know, it's basically yeah. the steel version of, of the Game of Logging program, about safety mm-hmm. in the logging over there. Because, yeah. I mean, of course, it's mostly mechanized, but, you know, there's far more regulation about how people work. For instance, he said that they're not allowed to, to work alone. Uh, yeah, I was surprised to hear that. Whereas, you know, a lot of the hand and the hand loggers in the Northeast have always been a one or two man crew, you know. But lots of people worked alone, uh, me included, uh, and still do. You just you try to be safety conscious. All right. Well, is there anything else you wanted to talk about in terms of what you observed at the show and? Um, yeah, I guess anything that coming back and getting back to work in America has been on your mind? Uh, no, I think, uh, I think, uh, of course, I read quite a bit of different stuff anyway. So I think, I, you know, most of the things that I encountered were, were expected. But other than, the, you know, the, the manufacturing of the small harvesters, that kind of surprised me. And I don't see how you could pay for that stuff in this area because a lot of landowners are not 
you know, they're, if you're not going to pay them like for commercial, uh, pre-commercial things and things like that, they say, oh, the heck with it then. And my version, uh, or <laughs> my vision of, of what it's like down here is landowners have enough money so they don't have to manage their forest. Yeah, totally. All right. Well, I will let you get back to your Sunday. Thank you okay. for taking time to talk to me about it and for yeah. going over there. No problem. This month's podcast is sponsored by John Deere. John Deere, forestry is not for the faint-hearted or the ill-prepared. To get things done in difficult conditions, you need to take advantage of every available tool. That's why more loggers are relying on web-based Timbermatic maps and onboard Timber Manager, which provide access to real-time production and machine location data. As a part of John Deere Precision Forestry, these tools allow you to streamline communication, increase efficiency, and see your job sites in a whole new way. I, I'm just putting together a short podcast about going to Elmia. I wanted to get your takeaway from the show. So maybe we could start with you just talking about your decision to go over there this year and what you hope to see. Yeah, I had seen the show, the social media traffic about it in the past and seen it covered in other media publications and thought it would be really interesting as it seems like it's premier global logger expo. So had, I always put it on my calendar on my phone years ahead of when it was going to be held and it popped up last year and then it was canceled and Joel Courier and I got talking about it this winter and I thought it was his idea to go, and he says it was my idea to go. But anyway, we, we, we bought tickets and went. That's great. And so did you know much about Scandinavian logging or European logging before you went over there? Not a lot. Not not in any kind of organized way. Read about it. I knew Cut to Length was developed for that type of forestry. And Mike Snyder, Commissioner Snyder at the Department of Forest Parks and Recreation, who I worked with for four years, had been a forester there a couple of years after he got out of college and he had talked about it and I was really intrigued just all the different pieces I I was really interested in seeing how things were done over there. Right. Getting there and actually getting to the show, did anything take you by surprise? I think the thing that took me by surprise is how easy as it was. To you know, logistically travel-wise and all that, I mean, it wasn't that long a flight and Everybody spoke English. It was really easy to get directions uh, on a GPS, on a car. Right. And and then actually, like, with looking at some of the equipment that they use over there, what what was it that you observed? Well, the thing that, I, that, that was notable to me that I didn't see was I did not see a single feller buncher in the country. I did not see a single skitter, grapple or cable, did not see a single loader slasher. And everything was based on cut to length and there the the timber growing clearly was the reason for that i've said to a lot of people it was a lot like going to iowa in terms of the, the landscape the farmland and then the timber was grown like corn and in plantations and rows everywhere we drove by the places we went in the woods in the forest land there so the focus on cut to length was obvious why it works there but then the the really big surprise for me in that respect was the small diameter uh, they were taking wood down to one and a half two inch diameter merchantable product which is virtually unheard of here 
and they had a lot of equipment geared toward doing that small scale harvesting. You also attended some kind of forestry workshops, some people talking about, you know, the future of the forest and could you talk about your takeaway from that? Yes, they they had a couple of the seminars were in English. They had seminars all day long with political figures and uh, forest products industry folks there. And the one I attended, the representative from the forest products industry talking about the history, current, state, and future of how Sweden manages its forest. And there was so many parallels to the U.S. Talked about heavy overcutting in the 1800s and uh, a realization of the need for sustainable forestry in the early 1900s, moving into the green certifications in the 1990s. And then today, they're looking to balance, respond to climate change and mitigate climate change with the different types of rotations, how they're going to, you know, different types of patch cuts. They're looking at um, whether it's old growth or growth, or they called it natural state, forest, forest land in a natural state. And they're really looking to use forest products as carbon sequestering durable goods. My takeaway was that they were really focusing on biofuels, whether it's wood energy, whether it's going to be a fuel, it's a burned to create steam to generate electricity. Firewood is a huge component, appears to be, of what they're heating their homes with. Is essentially very, very similar to the U.S. And I sat with two women who were from Australia, and we chatted for quite a while afterward, and it sounded like they're facing a very similar thing there. So my takeaway from all that was, uh, you know, hearing those different perspectives from completely different parts of the planet, that the idea that some folks are pushing here to stop logging, just put forest land into old growth categories. If that approach is taken up, our forest products that we still are using, they're just going to be, the, the demand for that is going to go to countries where they're not doing a good job with forest management, where things are uncontrolled. Not that this is about control, but the idea that I think, we, like here in Vermont, I think we do a really, really good job. I think we have the current use program. People are managing forests well, and there's opportunity to use these, create these raw materials and meet these societal objectives and do it well. But some people say, well, we just don't want industry here. We don't want trucks. We don't want sawmills. We don't want trees cut. All that's going to do is the impact of the products we're still consuming while pretending that it doesn't, you know, you know that we're not having this uh, uh, impact on our environment or climate. So I thought, to me, that for my advocacy work, it was a real eye-opener that, hey, if, if like other countries are facing the same thing, we really should work on mutually existing demands here, figuring this out to do it well, because it, all that spells is, I think, opportunity. Totally. And for your own operation, did you have some, some takeaways? Yeah. Um, the, the major manufacturers were not there to show, which is always a big draw to see John Deere or Ponzi or Tiger Cat equipment at an expo, but I'm not I'm not going there with a checkbook looking to buy a new half million dollar machine. But I found so much innovation in this in the smaller vendors. We saw technology there for we have a camera system on our loader slasher and we talked with one company about how we might be able to measure this diameter of the logs on the deck of the slasher with camera technology. We saw clever ideas 
the wood splitting technology, they're, what they're using, the way they're hand, ball handling, really small firewood, even down to grease guns. I saw some really clever ideas on how they modify grease guns and things like that. So, so that to me was, uh, I have a whole list of things that I wrote down, that I, ideas and things that we can do here that, that you just don't see in the States. <laughs> totally, totally. Well, do you think you'd ever go back? Uh, definitely. Uh, I, I think the next show is going to be in the end of May, beginning of June of 2025, and I, I, I will definitely be trying to get over there and encouraging others. Anybody who's interested in logging or processing wood, different things like that, it was it was well worth it. The people were so welcoming and Everybody, as as we know, if, if, you know, a few few restaurant staff didn't speak English, but other than that, it, it was so easy to be over there, and it was very affordable. No, no more expensive, if not less expensive than than being here in the states. So it was. I encourage anybody to go. And I wanted to ask you because we had a kind of cool experience together of looking at these pieces of logging technology that could attach to tractors which was not something that I had ever seen in the States. I was wondering if you wanted to talk a little bit about that. We had the opportunity to go out into the woods to a demonstration site where this company called HiPro was demonstrating three different sizes of cut-to-length processors that mount to the three-point hitch on a tractor, a farm tractor, is the power plant and mobility vehicle for those things. And that was really interesting because we talked about a lot of utilization of a lot of small diameter timber. They're very much in the hand felling. their woods over there, the timber on those smaller scale homeowner-like operations. The idea that somebody can have cut-to-length technology with a computer screen on a three-point hitch implement where the operator can pre-program all these types of things that you see only in massive uh, machines here today with like Ponzi or Tiger Cat or, or Rotney or John Deere um, was available on this this small thing. And, and again, their cutting cut-to-length system was going down to two inches. They were making pulp and firewood on that scale. And I... I was doing the math as much as I could to figure it out because they're selling it by the cubic meter. I figured that the retail value, the, the mill delivered value of that wood was less per ton than we're getting. And there's so much more handling involved. And, and I, I would love to learn more about how they, they afford to do that because there's obviously a missing, there's an economic gap there. But the equipment was durable, and we—I mean—we watched all these different sizes of machines work, and it's durable, well built, thought about how people can run it efficiently. We saw them putting all kinds of stems per minute, stems per minute, really through these machines that one person on the ground was was uh, cabling them into the machine, and it seemed to all work well. And the owner of the company was right there, and he was a logger who had been injured and told by by the doctors that he would never work in the woods again. And he was determined to go. Um, he had a neat story about how he, he, he built that business. And it was, it was really fun to hear. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, I mean, thank you for your description of all of this. It was great running into you over there. And I appreciated your insight in terms of what you were seeing while we were going through the show, because you and Henry picked up on so much that I wouldn't have seen otherwise. So thank you for that and for your time doing this interview. Yeah, you're welcome. It was it was great to run into you all over there too. Hey, thanks for listening to this month's Northern Logger podcast. This podcast is sponsored by John Deere. John Deere, taking logging to a new level. Forestry is not for the faint-hearted or the ill-prepared. 
To get things done in difficult conditions, you need to take advantage of every available tool. That's why more loggers are relying on web-based Timbermatic maps and onboard Timber Manager, which provide access to real-time production and machine location data. As a part of John Deere Precision Forestry, these tools allow you to streamline communication, increase efficiency, and see your job sites in a whole new way. Visit johndeere.com slash precisionforestry for more information. Thanks for listening. Have a great month. Bye.